The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. I will try to... Is, does this sound... Can everybody hear me okay? I have a very kind of um, a voice that is, uh, some people say is soothing, other people say uh, puts them to sleep. My, my gift in the body of Christ is I help people rest in the spirit. <laughs> and so it happens to my students all the time. I know that my charism's working when their heads hit the, hit the table. So if that happens to someone next to you, you know, as long as they're not snoring too loud, just let them go. <laughs> Remember that the Lord pours out uh, blessings on his beloved while they slumber. So, so in, in, um, in a very real way, I'm making sure, oh, let me, there we go. Uh, I missed all the, uh, they missed all the jokes on the recording. <laughs> in a very real way, uh, a day of reflection like we have today is a, a time to withdraw from our concerns and to enter into the rest of the Lord. Uh, so the hard part is right now in your lives, there's any number of things that are going on. Loved ones that you're worried about. Loved ones that you would like to pin against the wall. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're, um, uh, or maybe there's something going on at work. Maybe there's something going on in your neighborhood or your parish. And today, the Lord is concerned about all those things that you're concerned about, but he's concerned about them more than you are. And if you would just take a moment and entrust those to the Lord and try to, to let go of them, they'll come back periodically during the day. That's normal. But when they come back, just give them to the Lord again. And so let's just spend one moment in silence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are going to be talking in this opening lecture, and really to, uh, to, throughout today, I'm going to be talking to you about contemplation, and contemplation of, of the Holy Face is kind of our, our theme for the day. And... Um, uh, and I will bring you through uh, all three all three presentations. But uh, what we just did, ju just that moment, we opened up today. We we started with a prayer to the Holy Spirit, and then in the beginning of this presentation, we began with the sign of the cross. And sometimes we do things so often we forget what we're doing. We forget why we're doing them. And so, if, if I could, in order to see the face of God, the only way. The face of God is disclosed to us is through the cross of Christ. And so that's why we begin our prayer with the sign of the cross. 
some of you have heard this before, and I, I apologize if, uh, if it's repetitive, but uh, as Catholics, we need to remember who we are, and that means we need to recall why we do what we do. So when we make the sign of the cross, the first thing we do is we touch the top of our head, don't we? We say, in, in the name of the Father. When we do that, we're asking for God to bless all our thoughts. Uh, the scripture of St. Paul says, to submit every thought to Christ. And in, uh, uh, we're to live a transformed life. How? In Romans 12, uh, verse 2, through the renewal of our mind. So we're asking for the blood of Jesus to renew our minds. And then we touch kind of the top of our gut. The gut in the ancient world is the place of, of all the needs and desires, that, some of which we don't even know we have. Um, uh, this is in colloquial English. Remember when you're a kid, you know, you don't got any guts. Remember that? You know, you, well, if you don't got any guts, you're, you're, you don't have any courage. You, you're, you're afraid to do what you want to do. And, um, and so the, 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 our guts, uh, the, these, this place, this place deep within you, or, or the other thing that we have in colloquial English, um, you know, what should I do? Well, what does your gut tell you? You know, where you're asking the Lord to bless that kind of intuitive, emotional sense where, where, uh, deep inside us our, um, our instinct for self-preservation is. You know, we, you, you're driven by instinct of self-preservation. Without the grace of Christ, that instinct uh, can work against the life of grace. Because what does, what does Jesus says, say? He says, unless you renounce yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And your instinct of self-preservation says, I don't think so. You know? <laughs> well, so, so because there's some... There's, there's things in us that need Christ, but they don't even know they need Christ. We ask for the blood of Jesus to be washed over those kind of instincts and needs and emotional drives. So in the name of the Father and the Son. And then we, we touch this shoulder. This is your left shoulder. In the, in the uh, world of the uh, ancient people, you carried your shield on your left shoulder. And um, the way your, your castles were, were typically built, you, the, typically your, your doors would, would face out towards the east uh, uh, so that when you went out to battle, to the north would be, um, your, your enemies would always be kind of, you, you'd be oriented so your enemies would be situated to the north of you. And you'd have your shield so if they threw spears or fiery darts or arrows, you could block them. Uh, this, if you ever go to the Holy Land, it's kind of neat. You'll see the castles are designed so that the left arm is out where the, the shields are. And, and so when, when we ask the Lord to bless, um, to bless us, to pour his blood out on us, on our left shoulder, we're saying, Lord, protect me from anything that could harm me, from the, from the fiery darts of the evil one. For the, for the arrow that flies by day. Protect me from those things, Jesus. Um, and then uh, your, your other arm, um, as you're marching east towards the, the rising sun, uh, 
uh, east, the, uh, it was the direction the Christians believed Jesus would appear in the east on the last days. So as a Christian soldier, you're marching out towards the east. Your right hand has two functions, doesn't it? On one hand, it's your, if I'm to talk about a shield, this would be your sword hand. And with the sword, what do you do? With the sword, um, you, uh, uh, you fight the enemy. You know, you take them on. Uh, and, and, and so we speak about the, the sword of truth because what is our biggest enemy in this life? It's falsehood. The world is surrounded with all kinds of myths. People believe all kinds of myths. All kinds of falsehoods. And in their falsehoods that they believe, they, um, they don't realize how much they've destroyed their dignity. Um, there's this horrible, horrible trial going on back east, the Grosnell trial. Have you heard this? This abortion clinic where, where they, this doctor has, was killing babies after he didn't, wasn't able to abort them in the womb, so he would deliver them out of the womb and kill them in all kinds of ways. And the little bits of the testimony that I've heard so far, the man lived in a total myth. He was totally deceived about what he was doing. And not just him, but his whole office. They were all implicated in the same. And so when you do not know the truth, you are disposed to do awful, horrible things and hurt people in horrible ways. Maybe even hurt yourself in horrible ways. So that's why as Christians, with our right hand, when we ask the Lord to bless us, Lord, by your blood, by your cross, Help me defeat the falsehood of the world. Help me expose the lies of this world so that I am not subject to them, so that those I love are not subject to them. But there's one more thing we do with our right hand. Isn't the right hand the hand we reach out and shake with? It's the hand of friendship. Uh, it's the hand by which things are favored. It's the hand that we let people know we love them with. So not only is it a hand we fight with, but when we ask the Lord to bless the side, we're asking the Lord to bless our efforts to love all those he has entrusted to us. And what do we ask him to bless? The heights and depths and uh, vast horizons of our, our human existence. What are we asking him to pour down upon us? What we immersed ourselves in at baptism. And what is that? The blood of Christ. We died with Christ. And so we're asking all these things to be enter into the waters of baptism so that all these powers of soul, our heights and depths, depths, the horizons of our lives may be totally surrendered, totally abandoned, totally given over to Jesus. Just like Jesus totally gave himself over to us on the cross. And then when we do this and we surrender ourselves completely, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Father, is able to raise us up. And we recall this every time we make the sign of the cross. Every time we remind ourselves who we are. Now I start with this reflection. On one hand, you, some of you are going, oh, I remember that from when I was preparing for First Communion. No, only sister did it better than you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, that's good. Remember those basic truths because those basic truths are the gateway to contemplation. 
Now, uh, as I talk about contemplation today, uh, some people get very, very concerned about divisions of contemplation and, and the jargon around contemplation. So I want to explain to you what I mean in this very first presentation so that uh, uh, if, uh, if you can just kind of accept my vocabulary, uh, you'll find that you'll be able to read um, a, a great variety of saints and mystics on contemplation and not, not, um, not be as confused. I, I want to give you kind of the the broadest traditional understanding of contemplation, and then uh, different writers might mean different things in their books, but it's within this kind of broader context. So what is contemplation? Contemplation means to behold, to see. Okay? Uh, uh, that, uh, uh, it comes from, the, uh, well, our understanding of it comes from the Greek the, uh, theoren, uh, or theorian, and this, um, uh, our word theory comes from that. And, and now, today, theory means my best guess when I see what's there. But that's the, the part the Greeks would have fo focused on. You're looking to see what's there. What is, what is before us? And contemplation presumes this. It presumes that there's something beautiful to see, not only with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts. That uh, there is something uh, wondrous. And what is the wonder that is before us, that, that is being disclosed to us? Well, as Christians, we believe through Christ Jesus, through his suffering and death on the cross, what has been opened up for us is the love of God. And we can see that love in the works of creation. We'll get to St. John of the Cross in our second presentation. In the works of creation, like St. Augustine, St. John of the Cross believes all of creation is singing the glory of God. Uh, the tree, the flowers, the mountains, all of creation is disclosing to us how much God loves us. And yet we pass it by every day without seeing it. We don't see what's there. We're not contemplating what's there. One of the great, um, one of the great gifts of Carmel is that uh, the tradition of Carmel, like the tradition of the great mendicants and desert hermits, is a tradition rooted in contemplation, seeing the beauty of what is there even in creation. The, the, um, this scene, though, uh, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, this scene beholding the glory of God has been enfleshed and in our midst and has spoken to us and walked with us. And those words have been recorded to us. And so this contemplation extends to, to the sacred scriptures. When we read the scriptures, we're not just trying to figure out the story. We're not just trying to figure out what the original author meant to the original audience and the original cultural setting. The, uh, my, my brothers and sisters on my, uh, who are my colleagues in the biblical school uh, they work so hard at that, and it's important work to do. But they all know that that's not the end of the game. What's the end of the game? The end of the game is, as we ponder the words of sacred scriptures, we, capt we capture glimpses of the face of God. And contemplation becomes even deeper sometimes when, whether we're engaged with creation or the word of God, or, or, um, or both. 
God discloses himself to us in a very personal way. And when that happens, when God reveals who he is to us in a very personal way, in a way that speaks to us individually, that moment of contemplation, um, that's a, a powerful, life-changing, never-leaves-you-alone moment. You are never the same after that. That kind of disclosure, when that happens, contemplation has all of a sudden become prayer. Uh, before you're kind of open to prayer when you're looking at nature or you're reading the scriptures, your, your heart wants to pray, and you might even be praying while you're reading the scriptures. You know, Lord, what does this mean? You know, kind of thing. And uh, that conversations, we encourage our seminarians to have conversations with the word of God as they're reading through it. You know, question it. Uh, but as there's, on one hand, our asking questions, but on the other hand, there is when God speaks to us. And, and when I say contemplation becomes prayer, it's when we've opened ourselves to hear the speech of God. There's normally two divisions of contemplation that people speak about. Um, uh, they, they'll speak about ascetical grades of con contemplation and mystical grades of contemplation. And that's where the, the conversation gets um, kind of, uh, people love to, to argue with, well, does it mean this or does it mean that? And I'll just say this in general. Um, that's a, intellectually, it's a, very, uh, it's a very good distinction to make, but experientially, um, we don't quite experience prayer in that kind of neat division where ascetical prayer is my efforts and mystical prayer is what God does. What really happens in prayer is you're engaged in something and all of a sudden you, you find yourself kind of immersed and lost in love and you don't know if it's been one minute or five minutes or 20 minutes. You just don't know. Um, it, where your effort ended and God's self-disclosure began, I couldn't quite tell you. But it happened to you, didn't it? And that's normal. It's, it's a normal, regular thing in the Christian life. I believe even children at their first communion experience graces like this. I've heard them talk about this. I, I received communion and I felt Jesus in me. I received communion and it didn't seem like anything was happening, but then I looked at the stained glass window and I just wanted to, I, I just felt like he was there. You know, little kids will say things like this. Do you know when they say things like that, they're talking about contemplation, maybe even a mystical grade of it. And here they are, a little child, entering into some of the most sublime movements of prayer. And uh, for those of you who are incredulous to that, because every once in a while I run across, read carefully Teresa of Avila's life. And when you read her life, even before her conversion, she was already being lifted up into high levels of contemplation. God just visited her and lavished love on her. Now, this is, now this, this is the other thing about contemplation, that uh, a mistake, and, so, and then I'll get, uh, this is all by way of introduction. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to the meat in just a moment. But the, the other thing about contemplation is everyone assumes that when you contemplate, if you, as you enter into deeper and higher and higher levels of contemplation, your life gets better. 
In my experience, it gets worse. <laughs> and what I mean is, is when God begins to visit you with his love and, and you begin to see who he really is and who you are before him, the, the, um, what you begin to recognize is how broken you are and how much you need him. And the truth about what your actual situation is, is kind of disclosed to you. So we're going to be doing a, a whole retreat today, a whole day of recollection. And the whole purpose of this day of recollection is to make you uncomfortable with your lives. <laughs> and you're paying money for it. <laughs> but, but don't you see, it's a good kind of discomfort. There is a tendency we all have to want to pat ourselves on the back and say, we're pretty good people. You know, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I send every once in a while, but, you know, overall, I'm giving to the parish, I'm going to Mass, um, I, I help my neighbors, I'm a good guy. And as long as we have that attitude, we can't be saved. God's love, we've closed ourselves to God's love. We don't know how much we need him. But when you let God reveal his love to you, it changes everything. We're going to be looking at the Carmelite tradition of mystical contemplation. And, and, um, and so one more thing by way of preface in this pre presentation, I'd like to, to give you it. I'm doing research right now on the roots of Carmelite mysticism. Now, uh, some of those roots are so ancient, I can't get to all, uh, I can't get to them. We're going to be looking at that in this presentation. One of the roots of Christian, uh, of Carmelite mysticism, Christian mysticism, comes from the scriptures. And so we're going to be doing a, a reflection this morning on Psalm 80. Uh, but there are other mystics who influenced the Carmelites. And one of those, one of those great mystics, um, uh, lived at the, uh, uh, just after the time of Francis and Dominic, and she was a, a widow. Uh, what happened was that, um, she, she was married and she had several children, and, uh, but she wasn't a very faithful uh, mom or wife. And, um, and she heard somebody preach, and, and it moved her with fear of the Lord. And the person who preached was a Franciscan. And, um, and so, so she said, well, I might as well ask St. Francis to help me find a good confessor. So before she went to bed, she said, St. Francis, help me find a good confessor. And in her dream, Francis spoke the, the confessor that she was to go to. And so when she woke up in the morning, she went to the confessor and she poured out her, her, her soul. And the confessor gave her penance to do. And her heart was caught up in the love of Jesus. And she resolved from that moment on in her life that she was going to spend the rest of her life as a pilgrim and as a penitent, uh, um, a loving God and loving all those God entrusted to her because of how much Jesus loved her. And no sooner had she made this movement, this decision to do this, when her husband and all her children died. Now, her whole world was destroyed around her. 
But do you see how providential, how loving, how generous Jesus is? He prepared her for that moment by giving her the grace to want to go to confession. He prepared her for that moment. And do you see, when we say yes at this moment to the grace that Jesus gives us, when we say yes to it, Jesus is able to protect us. He's able to guide us through horrible, horrible storms. He's able to save us. One of the mistakes in contemplation, as, you, as we begin our contemplation and we see where we are before God and we see who Jesus is, normally in that disclosure, there's an invitation. And one of the big mistakes that we can make in our life is say, Jesus, thank you for that very generous invitation that you're giving to me. I will act on it tomorrow. If blessed Angela Di Foligno would have waited to tomorrow or the next day and the day after to act on the grace that she was given, she would have had to face great sorrow without the help of God. Not because God didn't want to help her, but because she didn't do anything to avail herself to his help. She didn't make space for God in her life. Contemplation is about making space for God in your life. It's about saying yes to him. It's about welcoming him and responding to him. And when we do, there is nothing that we can't go through, nothing that we can't go through that his love won't see us through. And this is the power of living a contemplative life in the world. This is, um, and I think today, given all the different things that have gone on in the church, uh, especially the last 10 years, the horrible scandals that have robbed people of all kinds of confidence in the church, and not just the horrible scandals in the church, but the, the incredible things going on in our culture today. Institution of marriage is under attack. Um, uh, uh, abortion continues to go unchecked. In fact, we're funding it all over the world now. You and I are funding it all over the world. Um, uh, the wars that, that are going out, you know, we live at a time uh, after World War II in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, uh, there was an awareness of how awful war was, and it, it checked us. It, it prevented us from going overboard. That awareness is gone now. People are, are angry today. Nations are angry. There's tumult. So we live at a time, a, a, a very difficult time in history for the church and for the world. What is the way forward? I believe the way forward is contemplation. I believe the way forward is contemplation. Now, imposing this, um, uh, a lot of people shake their heads like this, but they don't realize how radical of a statement that is, because we live in a time when um, the most important thing, whether it's in the church or out of the church, in our families or in our communities. The most important thing today that most people have been trained to think like 
is they've been trained to think in terms of results. So, okay, Dr. Lillis, I got this down. I'm going to contemplate, and then Jesus is going to show me exactly what's wrong with my life. I'll confess, and then I'll be fixed up, and everything will go well, just like it did for Angela Di Foligno. <laughs> you know, that, that's an attitude we have. If we, We're Americans. Give me the thing to do. I'll do it and get it done, and the problem solved. The result matters. In contemplation, the result doesn't matter. There are results. There are beautiful results. Results that I can't even begin to imagine. Results that um, uh, last forever. But it's not about the results in contemplation. Any more than, than marriage is about results. Why do we get married? We get married because we love one another. We, we see the one God has given us and we know i got to give my life to that person. You don't think about the results. You think about the person. Contemplation saves the world precisely because it's not about the results. It's about God, and it's about you. And it's about letting God love you. And when you let God love you, God can do things that you cannot imagine. So, um, this presentation, that was all preface, I'm sorry. <laughs> Forty minutes of preface. You're in for a long day. <laughs> Lock the doors. <laughs> the, um, the, the presentation this morning is, let your face shine on us and we shall be saved. Let your face shine on us, and we shall be saved. And it comes from Psalm 80. And allow me to just read this psalm to you so that you can hear the words. O shepherd of Israel, hear us. You who lead Joseph's flock, shine forth from your cherubim throne upon Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, O Lord, rouse up your might. O Lord, come to our help. God of hosts, bring us back. Let your face shine on us, and we shall be saved. This very first part of Psalm 80, um, contemplative uh, prayer, contemplation which becomes prayer, begins with a petition. Other world religions go crazy over this. They, they, they say, you, you Catholics, you Christians, you, you think that you need to ask God for things. Doesn't he already know what you need? Doesn't, you know, what are you doing when you tell God that you need things? He already knows what you need. He already, uh, he, he, if he's all powerful, he can already take care of it quite apart from your prayer. So why do you pray? You know, you need, and so then we get told in interreligious dialogue and and by scholars who study Hinduism and Buddhism, that, uh, well, petitionary prayer, that's okay for the beginning of the spiritual life. But once you've matured and you enter into the higher realms of contemplation, you become more like a Buddhist or more like a Hindu. Uh, that's a lie. Christian contemplation never really moves beyond the simple, humble movement of a petition, a cry for help, a... Um, 
This is what Therese of Lisieux calls it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you go to the section that talks about prayer, what does she say prayer is? Prayer is a cry of the heart, a, pri- a cry of recognition and love, a cry which embraces both sorrow and joy. A cry, begging. Why does St. Therese say that? St. Therese said that, she wrote that, in fact, in manuscript C of the um, story of a soul. And when she writes these words, she's dying. She's within the last weeks, uh, maybe months of her life. I think weeks. And, um, and at the time she's writing it, the thought of heaven is a torment to her. She believes heaven exists, but she doesn't see how she can be happy in heaven. God has plunged her, she says, into utter darkness. So you have one of the greatest saints, a doctor of the church, shortly before her death, crying to God and begging him for help. Her contemplation was deep and real. She knew Jesus. She knew his love. What was going on? In the course of today's presentation, we're going to be looking at what goes on. But uh, I told you before, Christian contemplation, it's not mental hygiene that makes you feel better. Christian contemplation engages you, implicates you in Christ's work of redemption. And you share in his sufferings. And so just like Jesus who cried out on the cross to the Father, his last prayer, his final cry, was a cry to his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of the heart, a petition. And if our crucified master, his highest, most supreme prayer, took the form of a humble petition, then no matter how high we climb in mystical contemplation, our Our contemplation never rises above that humble cry of the heart that Jesus made. We will, if we are faithful to the Lord, if we pick up our cross and follow him, we will have the honor, the supreme privilege of articulating that same cry from our hearts before our death. It is a cry of recognition and of love, a cry that embraces both sorrow and joy. So, very beginning here, the the nature of um, contemplation, kind of uh, uh, Christian contemplation, begins to emerge. It has the form of a petition. And this, I would propose, is one of the roots of Carmelite mysticism, uh, uh, Christian prayer in general, but the Carmelites, because why? The Carmelites, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the Benedictines, the Jesuits, the Carmelites, every day they pray the Psalms, morning prayer and evening prayer. And, uh, and they're, they actually, there's seven periods of prayer a day. So that ev- uh, throughout the day, you pray these prayers. Now, why does the church pray these prayers? This has something to do with Jesus' face, trust me. Why does the church pray these prayers? The reason why we pray these prayers, well, historically, the Jews were praying these prayers before us. The Jews prayed these prayers seven times, and they are our elder brothers, and we just took the practice up and we kept it. And so we broke our day up into seven periods to offer these prayers to God. 
They were part of the patrimony passed on to us by Jesus and the apostles. So they belong to us. And there are some scripture scholars who like to talk about the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures, and they mean the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament. Well, that's not a Christian way of looking at the Bible. The whole Bible is Christian because Jesus, through the apostles, handed it over, entrusted it to us. Tradition, what does tradition mean? Tradition means to hand over. And Jesus handed over how he learned to pray. How did Jesus learn to pray? Mary and Joseph taught him to pray the Psalms. So the word of God become flesh, prayed these words. Well, when Jesus, when the word of God prays these words in his lifetime, um, he doesn't pray like I do, you know, like I can go through, I can buzz through the office, be thinking about the grocery store the whole time. And it, nobody else does that here, though, right? <laughs> All right. Jesus, when he prayed the Psalms, he made all the movements of the Psalms the movements of his heart. So that when we make the movements of the Psalms the movements of our heart, we get to see the face of Jesus. Because what is, what is the face? The face is that which discloses the heart. And when we pray the Psalms in our hearts, share in the holy movements of his heart that he learned at the feet of, Jesus, uh, of Joseph and Mary in the holy town, holy city of Nazareth, in the silence, that hidden time. When those movements of the heart become our hearts, we're praying like Jesus and we get insight into who he was. Jesus prayed these very words. O shepherd of Israel, hear us. You who lead Joseph's flock, shine forth from your cherubim throne upon Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. You see, when you, you come across a name in the Psalms, if you want to pray over the Psalm, remember the story that goes with the name. Joseph was the one, you know, he, he was, first truth about Joseph is he's the one who is beloved of his father. Remember, he wore the cloak of many uh, the many colors. He was beloved by his, by his father. And at the same time that he was beloved by his uh, father, he was hated with the envy and jealousy of his brothers. And the psalmist is inviting you to kind of put yourself in the place of Joseph at the very beginning here. When you make this, you are the ones who are beloved by your father. You are the ones whom the Father loved, and he's, he's cloaked you. And you're also the same ones whom the world hates. So the world, um, the, the world uh, uh, hates you because you're beloved by God. And what does the psalmist say here and invite us into? He, says, he said, you who lead the flock of Joseph, we need your help. You, and so what, uh, what is this an image of? Well, Joseph was shepherded by God from his father through the hands of his enemies, his brothers who mistreated him, through rash judgment in Egypt where he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And, but he never lost his faith in God. He looked to God. 
think of, you might even think here when you see flock, you can think of other psalms like Psalm 23. Um, you know Psalm 23. Um, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, in verdant pastures, he gives me repose. With his rod and his staff, he guides me. He is with us all the way. That psalm takes us through the valley of death. And you're going through the valley of death in Psalm 23, just like Joseph went through the valley of death. He was in the cistern. He was in prison. Some of his prisoners were killed. He, he was around death all the time. And what does Psalm 23 tell us the, about the good shepherd, the shepherd who's guiding Joseph's flock? Psalm 23 says, And in the presence of my enemies, you sit me down to a banquet. And my cup overflows, and I will dwell in your house forever and ever and ever. Amen. Awesome moment. Right now in your lives, as we pray this prayer, there are trials and tribulations and hardships that you're facing. And if God has you in a good place right now, and sometimes he leads you into a good place where you feel safe and secure, chances are you have loved ones who are in a very dangerous and perilous place. Loved ones who are walking through the valley of death, who see the enemy coming on the horizon, who feel overwhelmed and overburdened, and who are, who are even tempted to lose all hope. We need to pray the psalm for them. Because for them, God has prepared a banquet in the sight of their foes. For them, God has given them a cup which overflows with blessing. And they are meant to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Not in some future time, like after we die, but already right here, right now. Heaven begins now. Psalm 23 isn't about what will happen in the future. Psalm 23 is a reality in our hearts that's right now. God dwells in us as in a temple. God has chosen, chosen you to be his home to be the place where he dwells, where there is joy and peace. Not the kind of peace where there's an absence of conflict, an absence of hardship, and an absence of suffering, but a peace that abides in the, the midst of great spiritual attack. A peace that abides in the very face of evil. And everything that you want out of life is taken away from you and shattered and falls down all around you. The peace we have in Christ abides there because it's the peace that flows from the cross. So in the Psalm 23, do you see what we're praying for? The kind of deliverance that is being offered us in this petition? Lord, rouse up your might. Lord, come to our help. God of hosts, bring us back. Uh, he uses the word might and the word hosts. Do you know what a host is? Uh, we think about, my mind goes to Holy Communion. Uh, the word host in, um, in Old English means victim. And so, that, and so the reason why we call the, the bread that is consecrated becomes the body and blood of Christ a host is because it's a victim. It's a, Jesus is the offering to the Father for us. So that's not what the scripture means here by host. Host here translates, do you know? Army. 
army. So host is, um, uh, the, the Hebrew word is sabaoth, sabaoth. A sabaoth isn't just an army, though. It is an army, but it's not just an army. It's an army that is arrayed for battle. It is a terrible sight to see. When you see, in the ancient world, if you saw an army running towards you with the spears out, uh, uh, ready to come, those armies, when they came in, they destroyed everything in their path. Nothing was left. You have lots of descriptions of that in the Old Testament. You know, uh, I used to love to read the book of Judges as a kid. <laughs> I know other people get very offended by that part of the Bible, but I loved it. Oh, yeah, you know. St. Paul tells us, though, that our enemies are, are not flesh and blood. They're principalities and power. And the army that is arrayed in heaven, that is rushing towards the earth right now, that army is taking on all kinds of evil, irrational forces that haunt us today, that uh, are attacking those we love. That it's not, in other words, this image of a host, when we say sabaoth, we're not talking about something kind of passive and they're kind of hanging back there with their spears and going, you fight the good fight, everybody. Good luck with that. We're up here. When you get done, come and join us. You can be part of the Sabaoth too. It's quite the opposite. The, the, the army of God is rushing down on us right now. The victor has already conquered the enemy. It's a cleanup operation. And who, what, who are we? We are like... Um, well, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis did it this way, and, and maybe you can go for, for this image. I, I kind of like it. World War II, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Allies were invading into France. And while the Allies were invading into France, uh, Germany was already had lost the war in very many ways. It was just a matter of time before, before victory would be you know, final, complete. And while that was going on, there were a lot of people behind enemy, enemy lines. They, uh, my ancestors, they were part of la resistance, uh, the French resistance, and they, they were um, uh, doing things to undermine the enemy. You and I, we are part of the resistance. We're behind enemy lines. It looks like the evil one is in control. It looks like he is victory, victorious. It looks like irrationality abounds in our society. In fact, it seems to abound so much that when you try to have an intelligent thing, uh, thoughts about it, you're the one who sounds irrational. You know, when you try to affirm something like the sanctity of marriage today, uh, you're immediately called a homophobe. Uh, I'm not sure what the connection is, but it, it happens so fiercely today that you, you kind of scratch your, you know, am, am I? You know, and, and then, and then what does, what's the, the purpose of doing that? To shut you up so that you won't speak, so that your voice won't be heard. Uh, I've uh, shared this before, but I, I want to give you a sense of what it means to be part of the resistance. The, the resistance movement, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our captain. And he, he will help us through. If we listen to the voices of the world too much, we only listen to those voices so that we can try, try to talk to them in a reasonable way. But we don't let them sweep us up in irrationality and contention and fighting. 
we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus has already won the battle. We can be confident in that. So if you have an argument with somebody and you blow it and you can't remember the five proofs of God by St. Thomas, don't beat yourself up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The, um, the story I like to tell on this point is Archbishop Charles uh, was um, once questioned by a group of reporters. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the moral issue was, but the reporters were indignant with him. And they said, seems like you want to impose your values on the rest of us. And he said, that's right, I do. <laughs> because if I don't, you impose your values on us. And frankly, our values are better than yours. Well, uh, uh, on one hand, it was kind of a... a, a um, a witty exchange, and they laughed at it, you know. But uh, on the other hand, there's a very serious thing in that. Uh, values are being imposed all the time. If we're silent, and only one set of values is made known, and we don't speak to the truth that we see when we look to Christ, how will anybody have hope? How will anyone have hope? We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and Jesus helps us find the words we need to say. We don't have to be worried about trying to calculate, okay, if they say this, then I'm going to say this. And I'm... If you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, you just know what to say when the time is to say it. And there, it's humble and simple wisdom. This is the wisdom that comes, we call this kind of wisdom, mystical wisdom. It's wisdom that comes that only the face of Christ can give you. As you gaze on his face and as you keep the eyes of your hearts fixed on him, you know what to say in the situation that you're in. You know what to say. Let me give you one more example uh, of this. I know a father whose daughter ran off and went to live with someone. And for this father, he was so embarrassed and so upset with what his daughter did, so disappointed. He, he said, I didn't even ever want to see her again. I was so angry. And I, I told her that this was the wrong thing to do. She didn't listen. She did it anyway. She's embarrassed the whole family. This was his thought. And then a few months later, she came back to him. Dad, you were so right, and I was so wrong. And I need your help. I'm pregnant. And he's not going to help me, this man I lived with. And in that moment, this man is a very prayerful man. In that moment, he heard his daughter ask for help. He, when he first saw her, he, all he could think about was all the things that he wanted to ball her out. But in that moment, when his daughter presented her, her needs to him, he knew that the last thing his daughter needed was a lecture. He knew in that moment that he just needed to love her. And he threw his arms around her, and he welcomed her home. It was like a, a biblical scene, like the prodigal. When he was telling me the story, I thought, this sounds like the prodigal son. And, and together they're raising the baby in their household. And it's a source of love for everyone, and it has drawn them more deeply together. And I've heard many, many stories like that. 
Jesus gives you just what you need at the time. And when you do that, you are allied with this sabao that is coming into the world, freeing people from irrationality, from bad judgments, freeing them to know the truth. And what is the deepest truth? The deepest truth is that God loves us, each one of us individually. What most defines our lives is not our mistakes and our failures. God knows that we're going to make a lot of mistakes and failures. That's no surprise to him at all. So he's not nearly as shocked or upset about our mistakes and failures as we become ourselves. What the Father is waiting for is for us to come to our senses and go back to him. Because when we come to our senses and humbly go back to him in our prayer, turn our eyes back to him, he is able to show us how much we are loved. He is able to show us the truth about ourselves. And here is the deepest truth about you. What defines you is not your mistakes, or your inadequacies, or your shortcomings, or what other people think about you. You are not defined by what other people think about you. What most defines who you are is the eternal reality that God the Father has loved you forever and will love you forever. And if you say yes to that gift, God the Father has a home for you, a dwelling place, a place where you belong. You belong in the bosom of love of the Father. That's your true home. And you, as a son and daughter of God, that is your true identity. And what others think about you or what you think about yourself, what, um, what you think about what you have achieved or not achieved, all of that is purely secondary, purely secondary to the love of God, the love of God revealed by Christ Jesus. And so that's what makes sense about this very last line. God of hosts, bring us back. Bring us back where? To the Father's house, to the place where we belong, to our heavenly homeland. Not in the future, right now. Because heaven begins now in faith. God of hosts, bring us back. Let your face shine on us. Let us know your love. Let us see your love. Let us feel your love. Let the love of your face shine upon us just like it did for the prodigal son. When he came to his senses and he was still a long way off, the father didn't wait for his son to come home. The son, father saw him a long way off and the father ran to him. God the father is running to Israel now. God the Father is running to each of us, his bride, the church. His face shines on us. And when we see the love of the Father, we shall be saved. Why do we contemplate? We contemplate because the face of God, to see the face of God, is the salvation of each one of us individually. It's the salvation of the whole world.